Good morning. Welcome to Super Bowl Sunday 2017. We're so glad that you're here. Men, how many of you are willing to say that you had hopes and aspirations of playing in the Super Bowl someday? Uh, all right. Actually, I just caught my wife's eye, so I have to go down this road. So, Aaron, so I accidentally just said how many men thought that they would play in the Super Bowl someday. Uh, Aaron, when she was in elementary school, uh, her elementary school in third grade, maybe second or third grade, uh, they went into the football unit in gym class at elementary school, and all the boys got to play football, and the girls were supposed to go and jump rope off to the side. And so Aaron, she raised a coup uh, in the school, and so she uh, went to the principal, went to the athletic director, got her parents behind her, and she was the first girl in her school to play in the football intramural at the school because that's the type of her. Yes, yeah, you should give her, yeah. <laughs> All right, so we got that done. Okay. So how many men or women had hopes of playing in the Super Bowl? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I see that hand, yeah. I, man, I sure did. I love football. Now, I didn't go to Orchard Park as I was growing up. I didn't go to Orchard Park and watch a single game myself. Uh, I do remember one of my fondest memories as a, as a child with my dad and the rest of our family is gathering around the radio. And I know this sounds like 1920, and it wasn't 1920, but we gathered around the radio because it was a blacked out game to listen to Frank Reich and the greatest, super, the greatest comeback of all time to be able to come back. We were all gathered around, and we had our, like this little field that we had drawn out on paper, and we we're moving the penny across the thing and all that. That's one of my fondest memories as of, of my childhood, of like growing up and having like this family moment is that game. So football was very important to us as a family. We just enjoyed it. It was, just, it was one thing that we always did together. Like I said, we never actually went to the stadium, but we always seemed like we would watch those games uh, together. I went in the Marine Corps after high school, and in the Marines, I, I got playing on a, a team there in the Marine Corps. It was an intramural team that we played battalion versus battalion, and we were pretty good. We uh, actually won our like, division and different things like that. So football was something that we really enjoyed. It was fun. Uh, that was flag football, but it was enjoyable nonetheless. Uh, after I got out of the Marine Corps, I went to a, a college called North Greenville University. And at that point, I kind of had in my mind, I was thinking through, I was full-time uh, student. I was a part-time minister of music at a large church. It was a very uh, busy occupation. And I had, now I was married and had some different things going. But at the same time, I knew I had my eligibility. And so I thought there's a chance at a D2 school that I would be able to walk on and play football at our college. So I didn't think that I was, you know, the elite and most elite athlete, but I thought, well, maybe I could walk on and play there. But over time, it just became obvious, listen, you, uh, you've got your life going on, music going on, and all these things. As a, as a full-ride music student, it just didn't make any sense for me to think that I was going to play uh, football as well as uh, play uh, music and do all those things. So it just didn't work out. It just didn't seem to have the time to do that. In 2010, we moved back to Buffalo, and I was back around the Buffalo Bills again. So it just seemed like to kind of rekindle uh, something. I was just very excited about it. And then I was like 28, 29 when we moved back in 2010, and then I had my 30th birthday. And that was when all my hopes and dreams died. <laughs> because at that point, you realize, listen, even the very best athlete is not going to be able to walk on to the Buffalo Bills and make the team 
at 30 years old. That's just not going to happen. So that was the day that all my hopes and dreams died. Oh, I did forget to mention something. Literally never in my entire life have I put on a, a set of football pads or a helmet. All of my hopes and dreams were all this tiny, minuscule thread, you know, built around four-on-four four backyard football and some, you know, like, yes, we did play these different sports, and yes, you're involved, and yes, I would go to the beach with my father-in-law, and he'd make me run routes, and I actually caught the ball when he threw the ball. Like, so I thought at some point there's this little tiny thread, minuscule hope that, yeah, maybe I could play in the NFL. It's pretty ridiculous to say the least. But maybe some of you here today and your hope of salvation isn't a whole lot stronger than that. This minuscule thread, this tiny little thread of hope that you're holding on to that doesn't have a whole lot of substance as to where it came from. Uh, I'll use myself as an example again. I went forward as a child growing up in the church, I went forward for VBS, I went to a Christian school and I went forward at chapel and I went forward at junior church and I went forward every opportunity that I could and eventually in summer camp ministry, I gave my life to the Lord. Now this is not every summer camp, but if you've grown up in the summer camp uh, ministries and you, you spent time going to camp, uh, you'll find that there's kind of a pattern that starts to emerge. Because at that point in my life, and for many of you as well, maybe your hope is pretty shaky at best. See, what normally happens as a youth pastor, and so we took kids to camp, and there's kind of this pattern that starts to develop. Uh, about Thursday during the week of camp, kids are exhausted. They haven't slept at all for now three to four days during the week. And something that the communicator says on that night, it just it strikes a chord, and there's some girl in the third row who whose boyfriend just broke up with her before she left for camp, and there's something that the speaker said, and she bursts into tears. And then that whole row of middle school girls, because one girl started crying, it just spreads like wildfire. Now they're all crying and weeping and just pouring over themselves, and they've all decided to go forward and commit their lives to 30 years of missionary service, and they'll never talk to a guy ever again because they're giving it all to God. And then they stay up all night night long and they sing kumbaya together and lean on me until two in the morning and then by 10 o'clock the next morning it all kind of dissipates and fades away and then they go to summer camp again the next year rinse repeat it happens again and again so faith that endures is going to need a lot more than a song and a prayer to hold on to Faith that endures is going to need a lot more than that to hold on to. This is the last week in our series that we're calling Resolution. And if you made a resolution at 1201 on New Year's Eve, and it was an emotional thing that you just said, you know, I'm going to do this. If it was an emotional decision that you made, it is a long shot that you are still pursuing that resolution here today. That resolution is long gone. And are you holding on to an emotional moment in time, and that is your hope? That is your hope for your eternal security? It's shaky at best. If you have a Bible this morning, and I hope that you do, we are in Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. If your Bibles are in front of you, if you'd like to use one of those, that's an NIV translation, and that's page 1257. I'll get you there. 
You're more than welcome to use your copy of God's Word, to use an iPhone or other ways to get there. But we're getting our way to Hebrews chapter 6. And as you find your way there this morning, I want you to ask yourself this question. What does God want for you? What does God want for you? Or maybe, what does God want from you? What does God want for you? What does God want from you? Is it to be more holy? Is it to be better? To be a better Christian? To be more religious? To do more good in this world? Maybe that's where your mind is going. Maybe to go to church more. Maybe to give more. And before you know it, everything just starts to pile on. The answer to this question, what does God want for you, what does God want from you, might be a pleasant surprise for you here this morning. Brian Long preached last week and did a great job on a difficult passage making his way through that. We had kids in the service, so he had to kind of make his way through some things there. And if you remember, he was using the analogy, he had the the plant on one side of the stage and the steps on the other side of the stage, and just helping us with this idea of the separation that we see between us and God. What does God want from you? If you push back into verses 11 and 12, Hebrews chapter 6, 11 and 12, that's where we were last week and where his sermon finished, where that text last week finished us off is what does God want from you? And it is a full assurance of hope. A full assurance of hope, filled with hope, or a robust hope, secure and strong. And this doesn't come by putting things on autopilot, is what we talked about last week. Uh, No, it requires diligence. It requires pursuit. And this verse here says it is not sluggish, some of your uh, translations would say, or lazy or slothful. You're not just going to coast your way along and have that type of robust hope. Verses 10 through 12, this is the message translation I'm reading from, and it just helps kind of get this paraphrase together. It says this, God doesn't miss anything. He knows perfectly well the love you've shown him by helping needy Christians and that you kept at it. And I want each of you to extend that same intensity towards a full-bodied hope. When I say full-bodied hope, that, that's a term that you would use. Our, our, our question this morning was about coffee. And you have a full-bodied coffee. That's a lot different than the gas station coffee that you'll get. It looks like someone went out back and dipped a cup in a, in a mud puddle and then set it out for you to have, right? Like that's an entire, a full-bodied hope, it says here. And keep it until the finish. Don't drag your feet. Be like those who stay the course with committed faith. Don't drag your feet. Don't get lost. Don't be lazy. Don't be slothful. And keep at it until the finish. So the question that we have for you this morning, if you're using the outline that we put in your bulletins this morning, is this. How can we keep a full-bodied hope until the finish? How is our hope more than a song and a prayer? How is our hope more than just this slight little thing that we can barely grasp, barely see, barely get a hold of? How can we be people that have more to hold on to than that? A full-bodied hope that we walk around with assurance, full assurance, it says, of the hope of salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. To answer that, we're going to go back. We have to go back and look at the book of Genesis. I'm going to do that this morning by means of video. 
How can we have a full-bodied hope? We're walking through the book of Genesis, which is made up of these two main parts. And the first part begins in the garden, where we watch humanity spiral downward in self-destruction, and it ends in the Tower of Babel, where a rebellious humanity is scattered by God. Then the second part of Genesis zooms in and focuses on just one family. And right in the middle is this story that links the two parts of Genesis together and helps us understand what the whole book is all about. So how do we get from the Tower of Babel to the story here in the middle? Well, after the scattering at Babel, there's this genealogy, and it follows one of the tribes all the way down to this one guy named Abram. You probably know him as Abraham. And God starts making all these promises to Abraham, like he's going to bless him and give him a ton of kids, and he says that through him and his family, all the nations of the earth are now going to find God's blessing. So basically, God is trying to restore humanity back to the goodness of the garden and to his original intentions for the world. So it's like his rescue plan for humanity. And that's why the whole second half of Genesis is about this one family. And so you have, you have Abraham, and then he has a son, Isaac, who has Jacob, and then Jacob has 12 sons. And to each generation, God renews his promise to bless them and all nations through them. So because of this promise to use this family to rescue the world, it's pretty easy to read these stories as examples of how to be a good person. But actually, for the most part, this family is totally dysfunctional. So for example, let's go back to Abraham. This whole story is about God giving him and his wife Sarah a family, but two different times. He basically gives Sarah away to other men by denying that she's even his wife. And then Sarah gets impatient about having a son, and so she makes Abraham sleep with her servant girl, which then causes all of these other problems in the family. So they get really old, and you begin to think that there's no way they're gonna have a kid of their own. But then, miraculously, they do. It's Isaac. And Isaac, he has two sons, Esau and Jacob, and it seems like things are going pretty good. But Jacob, the younger brother wants the family's inheritance, which belongs to Esau, the older brother. So he devises a plan where he's gonna steal it from his father, Isaac, who at this point in the story is now old and blind. Which who does that horrible stealing from your blind father? Yeah, and then he just takes off. So Jacob goes on from there to have 12 sons, big family. But Jacob loves his 11th son, Joseph, way more than all the others. And so he gives him the special technicolor dream coat and his brothers because of this come to hate him so much so that they plan on killing him but they don't they instead just sell him as a slave down in egypt now while in egypt through this crazy series of events joseph goes from being in a prison cell to becoming the second in command there and so later on the the whole middle east falls into this food shortage and joseph's brothers they come down to egypt looking for food and then when they get there who should they find as the ruler of the whole land? It's Joseph, that guy they sold into slavery. But he actually saves them from starving to death. And so here you have it. These are the great-grandchildren of Abraham who have done this heinous act to their brother. But God has transformed their evil into something good. And that's exactly what Joseph says here in the last paragraph of the entire book. He says, you guys planned all of this for evil, but God planned it for good, to save people's lives. Now these words, they conclude the book because they actually summarize the message of the whole story so far. 
humans keep choosing evil, and we are thinking they're, they're screwing up God's plan, but he keeps turning their evil back into good. And somehow, he's going to use this family to restore humanity back to the garden. So that's the book of Genesis. But we still don't... So that's the book of Genesis. Now with all of that in your head, with all of that background, that backdrop of what is going on in the book of Genesis, it allows us to see where the author of Hebrews is going to take us here. We're in Hebrews chapter 6. Remember the book of Hebrews is written to men and women who are really struggling. The Hebrew people are under persecution during this time frame. And the overall theme we keep hearing is let's hold fast here. Let's not neglect our salvation. Let's not run away when the going gets tough. Let's cling. And so God is going to reference here the very story you just saw in video form, this Genesis story. In Ecclesiastes chapter 4, there's this analogy given of a three-stranded cord is not easily broken. I'm going to use that this morning as kind of an outline for our message to say there's going to be three strands of hope that we're going to talk through today. Three strands of hope so that you will hold on to the finish, so that cord is not easily broken, so that you've got something to hold on to here. We'll move quickly through these. So here is strand number one. God's promise is sure. God's promise is sure. Beginning in verse 13. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what he was promised. Now, when we just looked at the overview there, you might remember that Abraham, he actually he dies. He's at age 175 when he dies. And at that point, he has these two sons, Jacob and Esau, who are about 14 and 15 years old. He owns no real estate there in Canaan except for a cave that he bought in order to bury his wife, Sarah. But he died in faith, it says in the book of Hebrews, uh, chapter 11, when we get to that great passage of the heroes of the faith. Hebrews chapter 11 says he died in faith, looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. He died in faith, knowing that God was going to fulfill the what? The promise that he gave to him. And though Abraham didn't see it, history has validated that very thing, that his descendants have multiplied and multiplied <coughs> if you remember the kids' song that many of us knew growing up, Father Abraham had many sons, I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Well, physically, spiritually, they multiplied. And there's many of the stars in heaven as innumerable as the sand on the seashore is the way that that promise was given. The lesson is for us. There has never been anyone who has trusted in the promises of God that came up wanting. There's never been anyone who was not able to see what God was up to and, and in the long run be disappointed that God did not fulfill his promise. God, in, in Abraham's example for sure, delayed his response. But he always answers in his time, not in ours. So if a three-stranded cord is not easily broken, three strands of hope for you to hold on to here this morning. The strand one is God's promise is sure. Here's the second strand. God's guarantee is confirmed. God's guarantee is confirmed. Verse 16. People will swear by someone greater than themselves. 
And the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Verse 17, because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. The English Standard Version says he guaranteed it with an oath. My dad used to say he would fix something, and this was just what, you know how your dad would always say things and it just kind of gets stuck in your mind, and you're like, Dad, that's the dumbest thing you ever said. And then later you find yourself as a dad saying the same thing because you think your kids will think it's funny. You've been there? So dad's, one of his statements that he made then and he still makes now, he says he'll fix, you know, the bicycle. I had a bicycle where the handlebars came off and he fixed it and he put it back on and said, all right, there you go. Guaranteed to hold till it breaks. And that was just his statement. He would use that all the time. Guaranteed to hold till it breaks. So take off on your bike, hold on to those handlebars and it'll hold as long as it'll hold. And then after that, you're on your own. And the handlebars came off. I was on my own. And so in some ways, you, when someone makes a statement like that, you say, listen, I would, I would like the guarantee to be a little bit better than that. I would like you to build something and say, this is guaranteed by this expert craftsman who is my mentor. I'll guarantee my work based on what he has taught me. Or if I'm making a financial investment with you and your firm and who you're working with, I would hope that your firm, the people that endorse you, that that guarantees the work that you are providing so that when I give my money to you, that you actually are going to do something that's going to give me a return on my investment. That type of guarantee or the illusion of a guarantee nonetheless. God accommodated himself to us. The common practices of the day or of our day too, of mankind, we understand this idea of adding an oath or adding a guarantee to his promise. Although this wasn't necessary for him to do, as the word of God stands on its own and it doesn't require this, he does this in this way. When he makes his covenant with Abraham, early on, it says that Abraham falls asleep and wakes up in the dim of night to be able to see they would, <clears throat> when two men would fall into an agreement together, a covenant together, they would take an animal and they would slaughter it and they would divide the two pieces of the animal and set it on either side and then the two of them would walk together between the two pieces because that would signify the covenant they were making one with another, that they were going to hold this thing together. And so Abraham falls asleep and he wakes up and it says that he sees the Spirit of God, sees God moving between the offering, between the sacrifice, between this, what is divided. The only one that was going to seal this covenant was God himself. Abraham didn't have to walk through it. Why? Because God was going to guarantee it. God was going to seal it. Verse 18, God did this, did God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. Now it says two unchangeable things here. The first one, as we've already said, is God's promise. That is unchangeable. Now the second one is that he is unable to lie. The term Behind this word unchangeable, if you're looking in the King James Version today, the way that it's translated there is immutable. It's a very specific Greek word that talked about the law. 
and how if somebody prepared a will for their family, be able to set their inheritance out, that this was the way that their will was to be performed, that it was immutable, it was unchangeable, that the only person who could change the will was the person who had drawn up the will, the person whose will it was. They're the only ones who could change it. So this was a legal term that was being used here. So the oath was for our benefit. This guarantee is for our benefit. It was not in some way designed to bind God to his end of the agreement, as if otherwise, if he had not made this oath, that the whole thing would come apart. This binding, this guarantee, this unchangeable nature of who God is, is all built around the fact here that it is impossible for God to lie. So first you have the unchangeable nature of the promise, and then you have the unchangeable or the immutable nature of him, that he is unable to lie. So it's there. It's written there to reassure us. And then lastly here in this little section, it says this, and I'm not trying to make a political statement here, but because of what is going on in the news, I think it's important for us to make the connection. It says at the end, it says, we who have fled to take refuge in hope. Translations of the English Standard Version of the New American Standard Version, they say that, to take refuge in hope. And again, the very specific, singular way that this Greek word is being used, referring back to the Old Testament, where there were cities designed to be cities of refuge, so that if you were fleeing persecution, if you had committed a crime and you needed a place to be able to be until you could stand trial safely, there were these cities of refuge. And because there's these cities of refuge and it's impossible for God to lie, then those people who were in those cities of refuge were safe and secure because of that. And what we see going on in our nation, literally things changed overnight between when I went to bed and when I came up this morning. There's this, a lot of tug and pull back and forth. And you don't have to stand on either side of that issue to say if there's a different president in that seat, it can change. The policies can change. This ban that we see on refugees right now can change. And in five years, it could change again. In five hours, it could change again. The difference here that is being built into this passage, what we see here, is that God says it is impossible for God to lie, and we who have fled to take refuge, that specific word, in hope. Some of you are here this morning fleeing from hopelessness. And God says you can take refuge in hope, just like these cities were designed as a place of refuge, of safety. You can take refuge and there will be no chance, no opportunity for that to be taken away from you. There is no reversal. It is all held in this immutable and unchangeable things. It's impossible for God to lie and for him to go back on his promise. A three-corded strand is not easily broken the first chord, if you remember, God's promise is sure. Second strand, God's guarantee is confirmed. Now thirdly, God's anchor <coughs> is steady. God's anchor is steady. It's maybe the most famous verse out of this passage, verse 19. We have this hope. It's an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. 
It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. He has become the high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So the author's point, he or she is making this point where we are hoping, what we are hoping for is absolutely sure. The anchor is sure. It is certain. It is safe. It is steadfast. It is firm. It is reliable. The anchor is lodged within the veil, it says. Now, if you remember back to when Jesus died on the cross, And he cries aloud and he says, into your hands I commend my spirit. Do you remember there was a veil in the temple that was torn from top to bottom? The veil from the Holy of Holies, it was no longer necessary. Why? Because something else had anchored its place there. Someone else, Jesus Christ. And we look at this passage, we see that it is anchored there. It's referencing that veil, that inner sanctuary in the tabernacle. The Ark of the Covenant had been there. Now the permanent temple had been built in that way. But behind that, that veil, this holy of holies, God's glory had met there with a high priest annually, year after year after year. But now, in the order of Melchizedek, it says here, And we touched on this a couple weeks ago. Melchizedek is a very specific priest that we see in the Old Testament who is not only the spiritual leader as a priest, but he is also the throne, the the heir to, he is a king. He's Melchizedek the king. So he is the king and he is a priest. And we'll go into more detail on this when we get to chapter 7 because Hebrews goes into more detail on this. But normally a priest would be in the line of Levi, Aaron was a Levite, and so if you were born into that line, you were in the line of Abraham. And so therefore that gave you the right, gave you the authority to be the priest, to be the high priest. But he says this is different. This is the order of Melchizedek. So now you have the order of the the priestly order and the kingly order. So our anchor, our promised future, is sure, it is steadfast, it is in the finished and purchased work of Jesus Christ in the order of Melchizedek, the priest and the king. And that anchor is steadfast, it is sure. So this morning I'll ask you to anchor down up above. Anchor down up above. What are those three strands of hope anchored to? What are they connected to? What are they tied to? And I say that this morning because we don't live in a shipping community. Yes, there's Lake Erie. Yes, there's Lake Ontario. But this is something that is foreign to us. It's a concept we don't understand. Not many of you, if any of you, go sailing on the weekends. Not this weekend. It is not something that we quite understand. We get the idea of an anchor. We understand how that might work, but we don't quite, it's just not something that makes enough sense to us this morning. We do, however, understand wind, blowing snow. I come in early, I come in pretty early on Sunday mornings, and there was about three weeks ago, I think it was the second week in January, where we had a rainstorm that, that froze over. Do you remember our parking lot being a little bit dicey that morning? And um, the company that does our parking lots, uh, Paul came in fairly early that morning because he wanted to make sure that our parking lot was safe for us. And so he was out 
in the parking lot. I had come in and made my way into the church, and I was kind of working on the message. And I look out the window, and he is salting the parking lot. And the way that he does it, he has a little, uh, like what you would fertilizer at your home. He puts salt on that and pushes it around the parking lot and salts the whole thing. It was so icy that he could not get footing enough to literally to push the, the thing to be able to spread the salt. And so to try not to laugh, well, I was laughing at him, and I'm looking out the window and watching this, like he's just sliding all over the place. The irony that he's putting down salt so he wouldn't slide all over the place, but he can't push the thing to put down salt. And to make it up this little hill up to the road was an, an impossible feat. He walked over into the snow, knee-deep in the snow, and carried it above his head to get to the top of the hill so he could make his way back down. I didn't make any contact with him until the whole parking lot was done. I'd sit around the text and said, Paul, you did a great job. Because I didn't want to be out there slipping and sliding around with him because I didn't know what would happen. So, so let me take that in our context. When we talk about anchoring down up above. <coughs> I just recently, it's a few years old, but there's a movie called Everest. And I know that we're not on Mount Everest, but stick with me for a moment, okay? Anchoring down for them, if you're climbing a mountain like Mount Everest, is their importance of a climbing anchor hooked onto something that is secure and that will hold on. And as you're climbing that mountain, there are winds whipping and snow is blowing and pelting you in the face. Your anchor, that rope, needs to be tied to something that's going to hold you there. Because why? Because there's going to be opportunities, crevasses, and those type of things for, for it to be very dangerous if it doesn't hold together. Is a life and death situation if that anchor does not hold. So picture here an anchor <coughs> with its hook and its chain in heaven itself, in the altar, in heaven, in the Holy of Holies, in God's presence. That's where your anchor is locked into. So you're anchoring up and you're holding onto this line as if there is a rope coming down from heaven and you are holding on to that, your anchor. Your anchor is in God. The main reason why you need an anchor, the main reason why these three strands of hope matter is so that you can hold on from getting blown off the mountain when the storms come. Why? Because there are things on the side of that mountain which will destroy you, wound you, hurt you, and leave you for dead. Abraham had his storms. Abraham had his trials that he went through. And it says here in Scripture, but he was able to wait on God and hold on and hold fast for God to do his part. Here's some of the storms that you and I will deal with. There will be storms of doubt when we question the Christian faith. And maybe you're here this morning and that's where you're at where you've got a whole list of questions that you're working through, and maybe you're even questioning the very existence of God. We can weather that storm by coming back to the truth of the resurrection of Jesus. Why? Because that is the bedrock of our faith. Everything holds on to that, latches on to that, and we can have hope because we rest confidently in him. Those mountain climbers will spend the night, they'll, they'll suspend themselves, tie themselves in and spend the night sleeping in a hammock on the side of a cliff. Why? Because they know where their anchor is secure. There will be storms of difficult trials 
where we wonder why God is allowing us to go through this thing and questioning whether he loves us. Why would a God who loves us, why would a God who loves me allow me to go through this pain and suffering that I'm going through right now? We weather that by remembering that God, who did not spare his own son, sent him instead to die for me and for you and has promised to bring us through and sustain us. There may be storms of defeat where we fall into sin and we dishonor our Lord and our God. And we can weather these storms if we realize that our high priest is praying for us, interceding on our behalf, mediating for us so that our faith may not fail and that by God's grace we can be restored. You may be here this morning and you need to be restored. And we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. That is a place of restoration. And as the band comes forward and as the communion attendees come forward, I want to just share with you that that, think about the men who were there. The men who were there, that last supper. Men who would betray him. Men who would deny him that very night before morning struck. They would deny him. And yet they could anchor back to him. Their hope was secure. They were restored when they latched on to hope in Jesus Christ. The three strands again to, to latch on to. God's promise is sure. His guarantee is confirmed. And his anchor is steady. The Lord's Supper is a place of restoration. The Lord's Supper is something that we celebrate here, at least on a monthly basis, to be able to talk through and be reminded of what happened in that final meal that Jesus had with his disciples. When he gathered them together to be able to talk to them about what he was about to do. When we think through being anchored in the hope that we have, being anchored and being tethered into Jesus Christ, look at what he was about to face. He says, my flesh, my blood is going to be broken for you. And then the author of Hebrews says, hold fast to that. And so this morning, we will partake in communion together. But as we do each time that we do that, I pray that you will be able to take a moment, take a beat, to be able to think through how secure is your hope in eternity? Is it based on an emotional moment or is it going into the deep, the bedrock of what we see here in Hebrews? This guarantee of who Jesus is because he is the priest in the order of Melchizedek. Because he did die on the cross as propitiation, it says in Scripture, for our sins. Because he gave himself for you and for me as the substitute for your sins. And for mine. That is the hope that we hold on to. That's a whole lot stronger than my goofy hope of thinking I would ever play in the Super Bowl. That is a full bodied, robust hope that you can latch on to this morning. Paul in the book of 1 Corinthians invites the church to celebrate this communion again and again and again that says each time 
that we meet. The Lord's Supper was something that was to be celebrated and be a reminder. This do in remembrance of me, it says. So we would never forget the sacrifice that he made. That we would never forget where our anchor is lodged. That we would never forget what we were tethered to. And that is Jesus Christ. The Lord's Supper is more than sipping a cup of juice and eating a little wafer. The Lord's Supper is a reminder to where our anchor holds. So this morning, we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Verse 23 starts this way. It says, For I have received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. So as we start there today, by handing out the elements, and the first thing that we hand out will be the bread, we invite you this morning to join us in that. We have an open communion table. What that means, if you have anchored your soul to Jesus Christ, that this table is open for you. We celebrate a dry communion so that that also would never be a hindrance to someone not being able to participate with us here this morning. So dear Lord, as we go into this time of communion, Lord, I pray that you would prepare our hearts. Lord, that you would remind us and give us hope today of the refuge that we have, of the security that we have in you. As we go back to that moment here, who you are and what you did with your 12 disciples and how we are to repeat this again and again, church to church, generation to generation. Let this once again strengthen the cord, connect the bond that we have to you and your bedrock of truth. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.